Brothers and sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We continue ahead now in the book of Luke. We're in chapter 23, and we will again be looking at verses 1 through 25. The title of the sermon being, The Delusions of Rebellion. I will read from verse 66 in chapter 22 until verse 25 in chapter 23. And please listen very carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that, He himself is Christ, a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city, and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Then he said to them the third time, What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested. 
who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Please be seated. So is, is your eye good? In earlier chapter in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, Jesus spoke, No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye, therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. The scriptures speak to us about self-deception the light which is in you being darkness. In Romans chapter 1, we see these words, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. Sinful men, apart from Christ's salvation, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is the activity of the fallen flesh. They bury the truth under their mountain of lies. Endless lies. Constant lies. Endless rationalization. The internal life of the lost is nothing but constant self-deception. This is also the essence, brothers and sisters, of that body of death the Apostle Paul speaks of within himself. Still within each one of us, within you, within me. And with Paul, we should be saying sincerely and adamantly to the end, who will rescue us from this body of death? You see, when we enter into a text like this, it's so easy to just think that you're like Jesus in the story. Let's don't do that today. What is a delusion? A delusion is a fixed false belief that is resistant to reason or confrontation with actual fact. In psychiatry, these are usually bizarre and obviously implausible beliefs totally inconsistent with reality. The man in the moon is not speaking to you, right? But in other situations, delusions may sometimes be plausible. The main point is that the belief is fixed, it is intransigent, even in the face of incontrovertible facts which prove that belief to be false. These people simply cannot release their fantasy. When your eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. Now we're going to get to today's text, but this is the interpretive grid through which we need to see this text. Delusion is mentioned in Scripture in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now I believe this text is a prophetic text about that generation, not about the future generation. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, 
and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion, that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is actually, I believe, a reference to the very crowds and Jews who were there at that time and how their sin would continue to mature and bear this kind of fruit unto this strong delusion that they would believe that somehow the Jews could stand up to the Romans. Note how rejecting the truth during the time of Christ and after the time of Christ when the early church was growing and presenting the gospel of the kingdom, rejecting the truth and not loving the truth and pursuing unrighteousness opened the rebel up to demonic deception. But even worse, note this, they are then the targets of God's wrath who sends upon them strong delusions. The bars of their fantasy world are locked tight by God Himself. Those who rebel against God are enslaved by God to their fantasy world. It's a frightening thought, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Isaiah 66, verse 4, we see this in the Old Testament as well. So will I choose their delusions, this is God speaking, and bring their fears on them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear but they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Choosing fantasy over reality, refusing to repent upon that path, God himself will choose the delusion for you to lock yourself into. So again here we see the Lord God placing delusions upon those who ignore him, those who won't listen to him, those who go on to do evil upon evil before his eyes. So you see this process. This is beyond just self-deception brought on by our own sin. This is beyond the deception of even demons that are described here. This is the God-wrought delusion He places upon those who persist in hating Him and rebelling against Him. Brothers and sisters, apart from Christ, this this should give us heightened astonishment in our salvation. Apart from Christ, fallen sinners create fantasy worlds for themselves. And these are impenetrable prisons with the assistance of demonic powers and it can even become a judgment of God where He Himself hardens them into this fantasy. Escaping into this false safety, they live in a mind prison finally barred and locked by God Himself. We need to see, brothers and sisters, sanctification in light of this reality. Sanctification frees us Christians from our own fantasy world to walk rejoicing fearlessly in reality. To be delivered from our own fantasy into the shocking reality of who we really are apart from Christ, our flesh, but most wondrously, who God is. Our fantasy world misses worst, not on who we are, but on who God is. Is this the light within you? Has the gospel light shone in your mind and in your heart, bringing reality before your eyes? 
showing you who you are, who God is, the nature of salvation, what Christ did upon the cross, and the continued work of sanctification that He is doing within you, dispelling darkness from within your mind and your heart. The Lord Jesus Christ sanctifies His bride. So as we observe the words and actions of the Jewish leaders and the crowds at Christ's trial, we think of Herod and Pilate and the silent disciples as well, we do see this sad reality before our eyes. Self-deception, demonic deception, and perhaps even the strong delusions sent by God Himself upon these rebels. But remember, as we're going through this, ask yourself, where would you have been standing on that day? What would you have said and done looking at your own flesh apart from Christ's grace in your life? Would you have been with Pilate or maybe frivolous Herod? Where would you have stood? With the crowds or the silent disciples? Or would you have been in the spot of righteousness on that day? Where are you personally in danger of the delusions of rebellion in your life? Do you prefer reality over fantasy? Is your eye good? Is there a spot in your life, in your fantasy world, that is off limits to God? So we'll look at the false accusations of the Jewish leaders in verse 1 and 2, the fierce attacks of the chief priests in the crowd in verse 5, the naive fantasies of Herod in verses 8 and 9, the continued vehement accusations of the chief priests and scribes, this growing intensity of their accusations, and then also the mocking by Herod and his soldiers, which is really a continuation of his frivolous approach to life. We'll see again, as it grows even more, the chief priests, rulers, and the people preferring a criminal over Jesus Christ. They all believe that he deserves to be killed. Insistent, loud demands persist and prevail. And then some questions and conversation to know and to love and to obey God. So first the false accusations of the Jewish leaders in verses 1 and 2. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. So the kangaroo court Sanhedrin has completed its early morning hearing, unable to find any witnesses whose testimonies agree and condemn Jesus. So they must base their judgment upon Christ's own words. Luke twenty-two seventy. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. There was no possibility in their mind that he could be telling the truth. Their fixed false belief would not stand up to any evidence, would not, would not listen to any evidence. These leaders created a fantasy world in which it was impossible for Christ to be the Messiah foretold in their scriptures. Even in the face of incontrovertible facts, these Jewish leaders were unwilling to change their false beliefs. Think of all the ways Jesus had openly demonstrated himself to be the foretold prophesied Messiah. He cast out demons of every kind, and he healed every type of disease in public. Jesus raised the dead on multiple occasions, And he controlled the forces of nature with his word. And he taught as one who has authority in himself. And he never sinned, showing perfection at every step of his life. 
Yet, standing before God in the flesh, these fallen sinners preferred their fantasy world and never gave the possibility that He is the Messiah a single moment of legitimate consideration. Next we see that their accusations against Jesus are false. And even their own prior hearing could not prove the truth of their accusations. They use this phrase, perverting the nation, which can also mean misleading the people. Note the vague general nature of this claim, which is often the case amongst deluded rebels. This is the kind of subjective phrase that is impossible to prove or disprove. Bach says this broad charge is a matter of perception and dispute. Jesus says that he was sent from God to show the nation God's way. Their rejection of his message shows that they do not regard him as such. It is the most subjective of their three charges. And this accusation argues that Jesus disturbs disturbs the peace as a religious agitator. So vagueness in accusations is a hallmark of rebellious speech. Next, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesars. This is a twisting of Christ's word from earlier in this week when he was challenged about taxes. Just a few days earlier, he had been challenged in the temple space. Then they asked him, saying, this is in Luke 20, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. So they're trying to trap him. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius whose image and inscription does it have. They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. So he did not claim that they are forbidden to pay taxes to Caesar. The next accusation, saying that he himself is Christ a king. This is a true statement. But even Pilate and Herod do not find this as a treasonous claim worthy of execution. The Jews want Jesus dead, but the Jews do not have legal authority at this point to execute Jesus. Plus, the Jews want the shame and fear of Christ's public execution to destroy his movement of followers once and for all. In this true statement about Christ that they state, is a veiled, unstated, false accusation that Christ was working to lead a political rebellion against the Roman Empire, that Christ was working to have a military political victory over and against Roman rule in Judea. Bach says the third charge is the most important, and it is true, though not in the sense that the Jews suggest. Do you see this persistent theme in the false accusations? They are veiled, they are unstated, they are suggested more than openly claimed. Jesus declares himself to be an anointed one, a king. And it explains what Christ means, this phrase, since Rome would not appreciate the significance of this Jewish title. Raising the issue of an alternative kingship alongside the charge about taxes attempts to paint Jesus as a revolutionary and to make his activity activity seem seditious. It is true that Jesus accepted the title of king, but not in the revolutionary sense that the Jews suggested. They were basically trying to paint Jesus with the zealots. They were trying to make him out to be a military, political ruler who would overthrow Rome. 
And it turns out that was really their own view of what the Messiah would do when he came, which is part of the reason why they weren't accepting him, because he wasn't doing that. Even though that's what they accuse him of. Well, what happens next? Well, Pilate doesn't really listen to them, right? We see the text. There's an increased attack, fierceness that comes out. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man, but they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. So two things happen. Their tone, they ramp it up, and their false accusations expand. What is this word fierce? It's to give additional strength, to make stronger, to augment their tone, their presence. It's savage, ravenous, uh, as fierce as a lion. It's vehement in rage. It's like a fierce tyrant, like a monster fierce for blood. It's outrageous. It is not to be restrained. Passionate, angry, furious, wild, staring, ferocious, like a hurricane. This is the response of the deluded mind whenever it collides with reality. Fierce opposition to reality and passionate, unrestrained defense of their fantasy. This is true of your flesh. And there's no hope apart from Christ within you that you would respond in any other way. Pride guides the fantasy world. But they grow their false accusation. Do you note that? They don't back down in any way. Twisting reality. He stirs up the people throughout all Judea, they claim. Again, the Jews just want Jesus dead. They want Him eliminated. They want Him and His cords cast out of their sight, like we read in Psalm 2. So they are seeking to display Jesus as a threat to Roman rule in Judea. Bach says, Jesus stirs up the people, which is another way to insist that he is dangerous. This is their claim against him. He has, they claim, the nation in a spin. To emphasize the gravity of the situation, the leaders note that Jesus' teaching extends throughout Judea. It's not just Jerusalem. It's not just their area. It's the entire nation. All of Roman rule in Judea is jeopardized by Jesus. The reference to Judea is probably broad here, meaning the land of the Jews, and makes the danger greater because it covers a large area. The leadership wants Pilate to see Jesus as a political threat. Their approach is that if Pilate is a good governor, he will not let Jesus go free. So note something that's going on here. A shared delusion develops, and it creates this mob mentality that is controlled by their false views, generating vehemence and a fierce escalation of accusations when their first effort fails. So instead of submitting to the truth, they increase their accusations. Instead of repenting of their falsehood and their false passion, they come up with more passion and more falsehood. Note also, and think about this now, that the very thing they accuse Jesus of, they are currently guilty of doing themselves. These people are being stirred up and end up frightening Pilate enough that he gives in. It is the threat 
of societal upheaval that they place before Pilate. Who's stirring up the people? So now the text shifts into a different kind of fantasy world. Herod's version of fantasy. And it's this naivete, this surface level living. You know these types of people who always laugh and use sarcasm to deflect reality. Who don't have the ability to enter into meaningful conversations. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. For he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. So Herod, he's different than the ferocious Jewish leaders and the crowd of stirred up, misled Jews. Herod does not appear to view Jesus as a threat in this text, but rather just as a cultural curiosity, a celebrity to observe, a toy for Herod's amusement. Bach says, rumor had it that Herod wished to kill Jesus, but now he has a chance to be entertained by the power of this wonder worker about whom he has heard so much. Now Luke has already warned readers what to think of those who seek signs. Herod avoids confrontation and is rather frivolous in his treatment of Christ. The Lucan portrait of Herod Antipas, like his portraits of the later Herod Agrippa I and the earlier Herod the Great, is not flattering. So this is Herod Antipas, and he displays the self-deception of the amusement-minded rebel, viewing God as a distant plaything, interested in God only for entertainment and curiosity, wouldn't be out in the streets debating politics, but in the basement playing video games. Interested in God only for entertainment and curiosity, never interested enough to get involved with real discussion, with real debate. What should Herod have done? What should Herod have done if he were living in reality, not caught up in his own delusions? It's a good question for any of these people. What should the Jewish leaders have done? What should the people have done? What should Pilate have done? What would you have done? Well, next, we just see it ramping up. There before Herod, the Jews are aware that they need Herod to weigh in in their favor. So verse 10 says, And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. So this is a mark of the rebel. Instead of using reasoned, calm, rational arguments, they resort to pressuring through emotions and passion and distracting techniques that take the focus off of reality. Jesus displays his view of Herod by refusing to speak to Herod. Now, that's worth noting. Even Pilate and the Jews received some words from Jesus, but those who trifle with Christ as a plaything get only silence from him. This word vehement here means forcibly, mightily, intensely. So the Jewish religious leaders continue in the passionate, adamant, vehement, emotional, false accusations against Christ. Well aware that if Herod does not condemn Jesus, their efforts towards crucifixion could fail. They even stood up as an expression of their ardor. So note again how their commitment to their false beliefs about Jesus continue 
but even with greater force. It's a crescendo. The delusions of rebellion never submit, never quiet, but actually only increase until the tongue is silenced by the victory of God in their life, either through conversion or judgment. So even in the face of another leader not condemning Jesus, they persist. We see the mockings by Herod and his soldiers, and this is kind of reconnecting back into the idea of frivolity, the kind of escapism and self-deception. Then Herod with his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. All the various forms of human self-deception are on display here. See, this behavior continues to show Herod is nothing but an amusement-minded rebel looking for a laugh. If he can't get some amazement from Christ as a magician, then maybe he can at least have some fun with his soldiers mocking Jesus. This kind of deluded person sees everything as a game. Everything's just a joke. This is the person unable to be serious for even a moment, always using sarcasm or humor to deflect the truth. Unlike the Jewish leaders and their fierce attack on Christ and His truth, Herod and those like him use amusement and escape, humor and sarcasm to avoid dealing with reality. Are you like this? Which technique does your flesh put to use when you are cornered by the truth? Verses 13, 18, and 19 show us the chief priests, rulers, and the people Again, crescendoing their attacks, even so much to prefer a criminal over Christ. Verse 13, then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, so he calls them together, he gives them his verdict, not guilty, not worthy of death. Herod and I agree on this, not going to kill him. Here's Here's their reply. And they all cried out at once, saying, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. So Pilate had completed his trial. Here's what he said. Indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. He's laying out all the facts. He's reasoning with them. He's showing them, look, I did the examination that you asked me to do in your presence, and I found nothing convincing me of your claims against this man. And neither did Herod. So in spite of their sound and fury, the Jews in the crowd have been unable to win the argument, unable to make their case that Jesus deserves Roman execution. Now, if you were dealing with rational people, if you were dealing perhaps with a people not controlled by a cloud of demons, perhaps... If you were dealing with people not beginning to be given over to the strong delusion from God Himself, maybe they would have given up. Maybe they would say, well, you know what? We tried. We've got to choose another path. No. They, at this point, reject rationality. And it's something worth noting that the delusions of the rebellion, of the rebellious, eventually lead to outright open rejection of rationality and pure appeal to emotion and passion and loudness and volume. 
So at this point, all efforts at anything even close to rationality are abandoned by the Jews and their puppet mob. No further accusations are brought. No further arguments are made. They don't claim that Pilate is wrong. They enter into a mindless frenzy, not even attempting to justify their angry, threatening demands. These people are the ones who are stirred up. And it wasn't Jesus who stirred them up. They they demand, they use this phrase, away with this man, insulting Christ by not saying his name. Away with this man. They just want Jesus gone, eliminated, executed. The same idea that we see in Psalm 2, cast his cords out of their sight. They see no reason to justify themselves with reason. Their own emotions that they're experiencing with everyone else around them saying and feeling the same way is good enough. That is justification enough for them. Give us a true criminal instead. Bach says, Pilate's offer to release Jesus sparks a reaction in the crowd which responds as a group, we're told, makes the case for the people's inclusion in the Lucan portrait. So in Acts 3, we see that the people are, the nation as a whole, is blamed for Christ's death. They cry for the release of the criminal Barabbas and call on Pilate to take Jesus away. Barabbas is the equivalent of a modern-day insurrectionist and terrorist, yet the crowd would rather free this sinner than the Jewish teacher. They tell Pilate to take Jesus away, which means to execute him for the charge with which he was accused. The delusions of the rebellious hate God and his people and his ways so much that they see God and his people and their ways as worse than an insurrection-guiding treasonous murderer. So note how the deluded rebel will have anything instead of Jesus. Anything instead of reality. We see in Romans Romans chapter 3 that in the end, in the final day, every mouth will be stopped before the great white throne. You see, now, for us, through the gospel of the kingdom of God, the light of who God is can shine into our minds and hearts now, before we get to that great white throne and all darkness is eliminated and we are brought face to face with who we really are and who He really is and what Christ really did on the cross and the nature of God's holiness and His wrath. And that we do not have to stand there in that moment for the first time and be shocked with reality. Because every mouth will be stopped on that day. Can your mouth be stopped now? Yes. By the gospel of God shining into your heart. Humbling you low. That's what we need, brothers and sisters. Are we humble enough before glorification? Say no. (laughs) Say no. Are we always too proud before glorification? Say yes. They go on, they, they continue to take it up. You see it in verse 21, but they shouted saying, crucify him, crucify him. No more arguments, just pure force of volume at this point in time. Jesus, he's not guilty. Pilate, Pilate has just spoken on his behalf again in verse 20, but the people will hear none of it. The crescendo movement of madness marks the shared delusion of the mob. When individuals enslaved to sin, stirred on by rebellious leaders, stoked by demons, and even perhaps given strong delusions from God himself, coalesce into a seething chaos of violence. This is what's happening here. 
And this kind of thing has occurred throughout history. Think French Revolution. Think Reign of Terror. This kind of anarchical revolution, hungry for bloodshed. So again, note how vehemence, emotion, and crowd assurance replace sanity and reason and justice. Crowd assurance is that thing where you look around you and you see so many other people acting this way and you figure it must be fine. You know, who needs any reason or rationality when so many of us are so angry? Does this sound familiar to you? So I think it's time at this point in the book of Luke for us to begin to ponder crucifixion. We're going to continue to think of crucifixion. It was a physical act, and we need to understand it. And we need to know what Jesus voluntarily put himself through. Bach says crucifixion had four steps. Number one, the criminal had to carry the patibulum, which is the cross beam, to the point of execution. The main stake was already fixed in the ground at the execution site. The cross had a shape either like a capital T or, as in more traditional representations, a lowercase t. And I'll just say as a side note, we see from historical evidence that it was probably practiced in both ways during this time. Number two. The condemned person would be bound to the crossbeam on the ground either by rope or less frequently by nails. Brown accepts the plausibility of Jesus being nailed to the cross. Number three, the beam would then be raised by forked poles. So you can see the forked poles on each side of the beams lifting it up and fastened to the already upright pole awaiting it. The length of which was so high that the condemned could get no support from his feet to breathe. Or this cross beam was dropped into a slot at the top of the upright beam. So it was either fastened to the pole or dropped into a slot on the top of the upright beam. So Jesus our Lord went through this. This is what the Jews were crying for Jesus to go through, this innocent man to go through. This is what all the rebellious caught up in their delusion want for God and His people and His ways. They want them destroyed and cast out of their sight. They want to have nothing to do with it. This is what your flesh wants when the Spirit of God comes against you and when Jesus Christ works in His beautiful bride to sanctify her one soul at a time, one relationship at a time. But this is what Jesus does to our flesh. So there's hope. Number four, a tablet specifying the crime was hung around the accused to publicly declare, declare the crime. Death came by suffocation, through exhaustion, or by loss of blood and body fluids. Some estimate the cross's height at seven feet. Such was the death that the crowd insisted that Jesus experienced. So do you, do you think we could, maybe as a result of today's sermon, take sanctification a little more seriously? Seeing that Jesus died on this cross for us to make us a spotless bride and to present us to himself blameless. So finally, the crescendo comes to its close. Their insistent, loud demands persist and prevail.
But they were insistent, demanding, because Pilate had spoken up again in favor of Jesus. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. As we discussed last week, Pilate did not have the foundational allegiance necessary to stand steadfast and immovable. Do you? Christ can give you that. Totally enslaved to their darkness within, the mad crowd remains insistent and demanding with persistent loud voices and Pilate just gives in. So again, see how their insistence and their demandingness and their shouting and their mob approach replace reason, rationality, calm, measured conversation It's gone. Justice is gone. And note how any human resistance to such mob madness, human resistance, will eventually fail and give in. So this is why we see the same silly things being said over and over and over and over again. It's because this approach works for those who are not on the rock. Because if you're not on the rock, you're not steadfast. You're not immovable. Either you're going to give in or your children are going to give in or your grandchildren are going to give in. And guess what? The devil and his minions will never stop telling lies. Never stop calling for the destruction of God's church. Never stop working against his church. And your flesh, until we get to heaven, is the same way. Your flesh will not say, oh, you're right. I shouldn't be that way. No. Your flesh is going to be emotional and insistent and turn up the volume and increase false accusations against you. This is how sin and the devil work. So will we be steadfast and immovable? So let's kind of summarize what we see in Lost Rebels and what we learn about our own flesh. There's a pre-existing allegiance to fantasy that has not in any way been questioned. There's a refusal to deal rationally and honestly with facts. There's a string of crescendoing false accusations. Fierceness, vehemence, growing whenever any resistance is faced. Remember, this is about the crowds and the Jews, but it's about your flesh too. This is how you respond in your flesh when the Holy Spirit comes to convict you of your sin. And me too. There's this increasing intensity, noise, falsehood, chaos in response to bumping into reality that will not move. Note there's a drawing together in crowd assurance, a mob mentality. It's comforting for the deluded to share their delusions with others. Note how also it falsely pits Christ and his followers as against civil rulers as revolutionists. Note also how this will falsely pit Christ and his followers against the legitimate church. Christ and his followers are against illegitimate civil rule and illegitimate ecclesiastical governance. And we know the scriptures 
teach us how to think and act in that situation. Not as revolutionaries, not as rebels, not as autonomous. Note how also those who walk in this path of darkness are guilty of doing exactly what they accuse Christ and His followers of doing. Note how they are the ones who are subverting Roman law by insisting that an innocent man be executed. Note that they are the ones who subverted true religion, not Christ. Note that they are the ones who stirred up the people, not Christ. There's this other category of Deception, they tend to work together. When they treat Jesus as a novelty novelty for amusement and mocking. All these crowds pervert evil over good. Or Sabbath over Jesus. Desire the elimination of Christ, His people, and His righteousness. This is not a truce. There's no negotiation with your flesh. There's no truce with your flesh. There's no truce with the devil. There's no truce with the demons of hell. This is an all-out, total war, unconditional surrender that we are involved in. And they are too. Does that fuel your understanding of reality, your prayer life, your study of God's Word, the behaviors in which you engage? Because the rebels will never relent, never repent, apart from God's sovereign. So have you been the recipient of God's sovereign work where He has come into your soul and conquered your flesh? Children, listen up. Young ones. Has Jesus Christ conquered your rebel flesh? Or are you still turning up the intensity of your rebellion against your parents when they speak to you of God's law? Or do you see the Holy Spirit of God the Almighty Holy Spirit of God working in you to crucify your flesh, to subdue you and shut your mouth against God's conviction and just say, yes, it is true, I am a sinner. And have you cried out to God to forgive you of your sins and seen the reality of Christ on the cross taking your sins upon Himself? Trusting in the forgiveness of God for you. And experiencing the almighty power that God has to shut the mouth of your flesh. This is good news, brothers and sisters. So where would you have stood on that day? Looking at your flesh, the work of God in your life right now, assessing yourself and who you are today. Would you have been next to weak Pilate, trying hard, trying hard, but eventually giving up? With the Jewish leaders? You know, are you so deceived in your view of Christianity that you could be like the Jewish leaders and attack someone who stands for true religion? Maybe as a mocking soldier? Next to frivolous Herod? In the fickle crowd? Or with the zealots taking up arms? Where would you have been in that crowd? There's a lot of choices there for us. Maybe next to the silent followers of Christ, they were there. Did anybody speak up for Jesus? That's why. That's who I want you to be. 
I want you to be those who on that day would say, do not crucify this righteous man. He is the son of God and worthy of all praise and honor. Be those people that were missing on that day. See him, love him, worship him. Do you see your sinful flesh today within you now as the body of death that only Christ can destroy? Do you understand what you're dealing with inside of your soul? This is not out there. This is not them first. This is you. You are all of these people. And that part of you will not shut its mouth apart from God's outpouring of His Spirit upon you. Do you get this? Do you cry out in the morning to abide in Christ? Do you lift your hands in Him, trusting the promise in Luke 11 that He delights to pour out His Spirit upon you? And that He delights to baptize you with His Spirit and conquer your flesh more and more every day? That Jesus Christ, your holy husband, is devoted to the sanctification of His bride and that He will do this in you. And this is no light matter. The same power that created the world from Nothing is necessary to conquer your flesh moment by moment every day. Do you connect humility with receiving reality? Do you see that your pride creates the fantasy world? And this is what we must go through. Affliction brings this to us. Honest friends bring this to us. God's word brings this to us. Life experiences bring this to us. Ultimate humility is just seeing yourself the way that God sees you. In your flesh. And also seeing yourself the way God sees you in salvation. As his beloved child. Because of Jesus. Will the mouths of the wicked ever be silenced? Will your wicked mouth ever be silenced? Are you more persistent against the raging delusions of rebellion than Pilate would have been? Than Pilate was? Do you see the idea of persistence in reality as the bedrock of sanctification? Not giving in to the ceaseless set of lies delivered to you by your flesh and by this world and by the devil. Who's more persistent? Christ or the devil? Jesus Christ, our resurrected and invincible king. He and his truth shall endure forever. And the devil has never put one dent in his reality. The devil has never changed Christ or his truth at all. This is good news, brothers and sisters. Who's more persistent, God or fallen sinners? What is more powerful, death or life? The cross or resurrection? Be encouraged, brothers and sisters, that the eternal, invincible power of God is yours in Christ. I'll end with uh, some verses from 1 Corinthians 15. 
For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Going on to verse 58. Therefore, my beloved, in view of the resurrection power of God, in view that life is greater than death, that truth is more persistent than falsehood, and that the joy of the soul of the delivered is always greater and more beautiful and persuasive than the power of darkness. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, how we rejoice in the victory of Jesus Christ over death, hell, sin, and all the manifestations thereof. And that our great King, resurrected from the dead, ascended, now reigns and pours out the Almighty Holy Spirit of God upon us who cry out for it. And we do so together at this moment, O God, with hearts and minds and eyes and heads and, and arms lifted up to heaven saying, we believe your promise that you delight to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. And we say, yes and amen, that you are keeping that promise in this very moment. And that you promise that as we abide in you, you abide in us. And we say, yes and amen to that promise in this very moment. And that the old man is crucified by your power. And that day by day we can, and by your grace we will, submit to your reality and repent of the sinful fantasy world that our pride ceaselessly seeks to create and be accelerated according to your glory and your grace in sanctification, that we may know you and see you and love you and serve you more fully and more powerfully until our last breath. In Jesus' name.